Drew and I actually had a really hard time connecting on the quarterback center exchange. And, you know, Drew's not a big man and he doesn't have giant hands. So I guess they would probably dock him at the combine these days. But we had the most difficult time to the point where our offensive coordinator, Cam Cameron, one, he made me take off my glove on my snap hand because he thought this super sticky glove that they've got now, he thought that was causing the, me to drag the ball back out. He yeah. also made me have the NFL logo that's on the ball, the gold shield. He made me place that in my palm every time I snapped the ball, which became a habit of mine. So every time I came up, no matter how the ball was facing, I put that gold shield in my hand because he thought that was causing it to slip out of Drew's hand. And the other thing, the other, the other thing we did, and this just totally chapped my ass was we'd come out to practice early. And of course we do quarterback center exchange, but Cam would have a camera right there up underneath my bum videotaping the ball in Drew's hands. And I mean, it was, it was almost invasive <laughs> is the way I felt about it. Yeah. Welcome to 90% Mental and the In and Out of the Pocket podcast series with all pro quarterback Jake the Snake Plumber and mental performance coach Grant Parr where the mental game is discussed and discovered by the best quarterbacks and offensive-minded professionals in the business. From overcoming adversity, celebrating mental wins, to actionable mental skills strategies and more, you'll learn how to mentally navigate in and out of the pocket. Today in the pocket, Jake and Grant sit down with former NFL center Nick Hardwick to get inside the mind of one of the toughest centers that has played the game. Nick shares intimate stories of Drew Brees, Doug Flutie, Kyle Orton, and especially Philip Rivers, where you can get a front row seat on what made each quarterback so special. Ready List Sports is the future of sports playbooks with its digitized integration of multiple learning styles that helps coaches teach better and players learn more efficiently. Engineered by former professional quarterbacks, ReadyList Sports' revolutionary play drawing tool will save coaches countless hours creating plays. ReadyList Sports also provides the players accessibility to study their playbooks using the ReadyList Sports app for iOS and Android. It's like having the playbook in your pocket. The best part of ReadyLists are the auto-generated tests the players take after studying that help ensure retention of your plays. Now let's all huddle up and go visit ReadyListSports.com. Welcome back to the In and Out of the Pocket podcast with Jake the Snake Plumber and myself, Grant Parr. We are really excited to bring the show to you to talk about the mental game. And today, typically we bring on quarterbacks and quarterback coaches, but today we have a special guest, more of a outside of the pocket guest. But before we get into who we're bringing on today, uh, how you doing, Jake? I'm doing good, Grant. Just uh, you said this is focusing on the mental side. It's good to try to not go mental during this uh, pandemic and social social isolation. So getting to meet uh, guys that I respected and enjoyed watching play and would have loved to have played with, uh, having them on the podcast is a lot of fun. So for me, you know, it's not a face-to-face, which is always better, but at least we get to have a conversation with someone that's uh, currently in Indiana 
and a uh, former player that's uh, pretty pretty much a badass. So I'm excited about today's guest. I'm beautiful. Well, let's get into it. Let's uh, let's bring him in the show. Uh, this individual played uh, in the league for over 10 years or about 10 years and just battled it out in the trenches for the San Diego Chargers and earned Pro Bowl honors in 2006. And so I'm really excited to bring you on here today, Nick. Nick Hardwick, how are you, bud? Grant, Jake, I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate you having me on, and I'm honored to be with you guys. Right on, man. Well, let's let's get into it. Um, you know, I don't want to have a bunch of questions that are surrounding Philip Rivers, but I'm going to start it off since you played a, a many uh, most of your career with Philip. Awesome, yeah. But you both were drafted the same year in 2004. What was your perspective of Philip as a quarterback, as a rookie? And how different of a quarterback did he change throughout the years when you left the game? Yeah, super interesting question. We did come in together. We were, he was the first rounder, obviously. The Chargers selected Eli Manning and then traded for a bunch of subsequent picks. Uh, One in the third round that year, I happened to be a third rounder as well, but I wasn't the associated pick. It was a kicker from Iowa named Nate Keating, who was taking number 65 overall. I was 66. And then the following year, uh, the Chargers drafted Sean Merriman, who was also part of that Eli Manning, Phillip Rivers trade. So big bounty full for the Chargers on that one. And it really did help set the tone for what we were going to be for about the next decade. And Phillip coming in, was his personality never really changed from the time he was a rookie until the time I left him. And we're still best friends today. I I talk to him every other day. We text every day. And I love talking about him because he's just a fascinating human. He's an unbelievable person, first and foremost. He's a tremendous Hall of Fame caliber quarterback. And I hope he gets a great opportunity here in Indianapolis. But as a rookie, when he came in, he was sitting behind Drew Brees. Now the Chargers had just come off of a four and 12 year in 2003, which put him at the top of the draft that year. They had had some bad years with Drew at quarterback. One of them went going one and 15. Drew had been benched multiple times for Doug Flutie, who was also still on the team when I was there, which was just an awesome, awesome experience. I got to snap to him in games two times. And I think about that all the time and just the way he saw the game and called plays in the huddle. And just, (laughs) he was 41 years old, but he won every sprint that we ran. He was just, his youth, youthful exuberance was really something to behold. And he was just great to be around. I mean, he was just a a great, great dude. He, He drove a Dodge Viper occasionally to work. He drove a 1979 Pontiac Firebird, the same one that Rocky drove in Rocky One and black with the gold bird <laughs> on the front. I mean, T-tops. He wore acid, acid-washed jeans and had the Leonard Ginner t-shirt and still rocked the mullet when I was playing with him. But he's just an unbelievable dude. But there was no mistake my rookie year, and we had training camp up at the Home Depot Center in Carson my rookie year. Philip was holding out for a contract he didn't end up showing up until the very last day of training camp. And there was no mistake to the rest of us that Drew Brees was the quarterback in charge that it was the very first day of training camp. Drew kicked all of the coaches out of the meeting room and he decided to put his thumb on that team right then. And he said, we're having a players only meeting. I'm going to lead it. We're going to establish our goals. And we're going to establish how we're going to get there. And I thought, sitting there watching him, I was a, obviously a huge Drew Brees fan. He was the reason I walked on to the Purdue Boilermakers when I did 
my fourth semester at school there because it was part of Breeze Mania. People were lighting couches on fire after Purdue ended up qualifying to go to the Rose Bowl for the first time since 1967. And I was a huge Drew fan, but I also knew the struggles that the team had had with Drew at quarterback and the struggles that he had had at the position himself because the team was still rebuilding and they hadn't quite had the necessary pieces around him. So when he was standing up, kind of giving the speech after I had been at press conferences standing next to Phil, who they just drafted number one overall, their number one overall, I thought, well, this is just odd. Like, how is this all going to work out? <laughs> but Drew, we we ended up we ended up that my first year, my rookie year, going twelve and four, and there wasn't much looking back. There wasn't really an opportunity for Philip to get in there following that season. There was a moment at the beginning of the year. And I remember Oh four Jake probably remembers this. I think we were at Denver. We had just lost a heartbreaker in Baltimore and we were one and one or one and two. And we were trailing pretty big at halftime and drew ended up leading us to a comeback victory. But they had told Philip, they said, if we didn't come back and win that game, be ready, son. Your time is coming next week. But Drew ended up, I think, coming back, and I believe it was at Denver. And the rest kind of is history until the following year when we went 9-7 and seven and Drew tore his arm up again against Denver. Uh, John Lynch on the free wow. safety blitz off the edge almost yep. ripped Drew's arm off <laughs> and on a, on a stupid play, Jake. I mean, this was the dumbest play call we had been begging our offensive coordinator not to call this into what we call the Lynch glitch, which was the free safety will off the weak side of the line of scrimmage, which you guys did all the freaking time. And it was just, we called it the Lynch blitz because it was John Lynch and we had good plays that we could have run against it. And it just so happened that the naked boot was not one of them. And we knew that drew was going to get hawked down by John. It was going to be a sack fumble. And it was going to be disastrous. We didn't think Drew was going to jump in there and get smeared over by the nose guard Gerard Warren and almost rip his arm off. But you know that it was wow. a uh, that was a, a bad leadership moment, not listening to your personnel and understanding what to do. But Grant, to get back to the question about Philip Rivers, I mean, he's always remained steadfast in who he is as a person. He's got a very stable bedrock underneath all that you see on game day. He is one of the most faithful men that I've ever been around in my life. He's an uber devout Catholic, his entire family is, and he prioritizes his life. And it's been known probably since a very early age, it's faith, family, and then football. And everything has to fall into that order. And he does not sway from that. And he does not veer. And uh, that's, that's one of the, the coolest things about him is that I think from a very early age, he's known exactly who he is. That's awesome to hear, man. I've, I've been a big fan of Phillips for years and years, you know, living here in Denver now for about the last uh, eight years, I hear everybody, everything they want to say about Phillip. And all I ask them is, just, is I say this, I say, you don't like him if he's, if he's with the chargers, but tell me if he was on your team, how you would like having a quarterback like that. And we've had some, turds come through here lately with <laughs> no passion with no energy with no like hey dudes let's go and that's what I love about him that's what I've always loved yeah. about you know my quarterbacks that I like and my teammates that I like and I felt like you've got to have someone like that at your QB position with that said 
you mentioned some badasses, Breeze. I mean, Doug Flutie, I'll argue, is the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. And I will argue and almost win some of these arguments because, you know, he was, what, 5'9", maybe? Five, maybe 5'11", five with that Buffon mullet. <laughs> yeah. So his skill set may be, may be the best in the entire history of football. Um, my question for you, though, is what – so your favorite QB you ever took a snap from, um, you know, who had the softest hands, man? Tell me. <laughs> well i tell you my college quarterback was kyle orton who you mentioned one another of good dude Wait, he's a very good dude yeah one of my, he was my college quarterback and then i get to the league and it was my college hero drew Brees, and then it was yeah. doug kind of sprinkled in there a little bit and then philip rivers drew and i actually had a really hard time connecting on the quarterback center exchange and you know drew's not a big man and he doesn't have giant hands, so I guess they would probably dock him at the combine these days. But we yeah. had the most difficult time to the point where our offensive coordinator, Cam Cameron, one, he made me take off my glove on my snap hand because he thought the super sticky gloves that they've got now, he thought that was causing the, me to drag the ball back out. He yeah. also made me have the NFL logo that's on the ball, the gold shield. He made me place that in my palm every time I snapped the ball, which became a habit of mine. So every time I came up, no matter how the ball was facing, <laughs> I put that gold shield in my hand because he thought that was causing it to slip out of Drew's hand. And the other thing, the other, the other thing we did, and this just totally chapped my ass, was – we'd come out to practice early. And of course we do quarterback center exchange, but Cam would have a camera right there up underneath my bum videotaping the ball in Drew's hands. And I mean, it was, it was almost invasive <laughs> is the way I felt about it. I yeah. Like, I was like, you, I don't know what you want me to do. I, I have quick hands. I'm snapping the ball really hard. So I can get my first step down and get my hand up there so I can protect my, frontal lobe from getting dented in by these 360 pound offensive defensive linemen what do you want me to do it was just a matter really of drew figuring out how to ride me i, I think was ultimately it so philip and i yeah. was a little bit more it came along a little bit easier than drew and i's uh exchange relationship but we also <laughs> had a lot more we also had a lot more time together yeah that's interesting. People don't realize that, how, how, how intricate that is, and it can become a problem. I don't know why or how, but it, it definitely can. When I got here and had Tommy Nalen, his ass was so low to the ground that it was yeah. tough for me at first to get in there far enough until I got to where I had to get way down in there and, and like you said, ride him a little bit, roll with him, because he was so quick. His job, like yours, yeah. same kind of size center, similar players really was – was positioning and then just pure brute strength to get leverage. And then now I've got you if I got leverage. So he stayed so low. Um, I've got a follow-up for that, for, for talking center quarterback exchange. And, it, and I want you in your words to tell the listeners, and I argue this too, why the center position, not the quarterback position, is the very most important position on the offense. Ooh, it's – I guess that's hard for me to argue just because I know how much the quarterback has to do and how much time they have to put in and everything that they have to know and the knowledge base that you guys have to have. And not only 
do you have to know what everybody on the offense is doing? More likely than not, you understand exactly what the defense is doing. So you know what your offensive coordinator is intending with the play he calls in and the backup play in case that one's no good. And then you also have to understand the formation and the personnel grouping and what you can do and how you can ad-lib within the system based on what the defense has presented. Then you have to know the down of this, and you have to know the time on the clock. You have to know the play <laughs> clock itself. You have to factor in the defensive coordinator and his likes, his dislikes, and, and basically his signature calls at certain times of games and have all of that rotating through your head at the same time and then have people coming at you and especially when you played having people come in to try to take you out of the game physically and to be able to stand there with courage under fire while bodies are flying all around mayhem is happening the crowd is going crazy the clock's running down and you know at the end of the day, it's not going to be the offensive lineman that anybody blames. It's going to be Jake Plummer. It's going to be Phillip Rivers. It's going to yeah. be the quarterback who ultimately either makes the play or doesn't make the play. And so I think it's hard for me to argue that, but I will argue that the, the center position is starting to, I think, be appreciated more. But I think for a long time, mm -hmm. it was quite underrated as far as what the center had to do and all that goes into it. And then just how physically challenging it is to be playing with a nose guard that's about three inches from your ear hole and have to snap the ball with that hand, use your head as your hand until your hand can get back up to fight him. Try to get your foot back on the ground. A lot of times these guys that you're playing are the biggest, baddest dudes, not only on, on the defense, on the entire field. I mean, you're talking about the guy on the planet, man. You're, you're talking about on the planet. <laughs> we, right. we are, t we are a hundred percent. And so I, I think there's people are starting now to appreciate how valuable the center is from a leadership standpoint, setting the tone in the huddle commanding until that quarterback steps in there and you tell him, tell everybody in that huddle, they give him your eyes. And then, you set the tone on the break and you get up to the line of scrimmage with the right tempo and you jog back appropriately. And, you know, I, when I was the center, I thought a big part of my role was being kind of the cheerleader as well, keeping everybody positive yeah. and optimistic through practice, through meetings, on the bus rides to and from games, whether we won or lost on the way out of there and really just having an overall optimism that everybody could radiate off of. And I thought that was the, the center's job in the huddle was to really set the tone of the whole operation. So, so I, well, you almost are arguing my point, but then you kind of back me up on this is why. What you just said is you do it all so um, behind the scenes. Like no one knows who you are really until – you have a horrible game and your QB gets hurt. You hand the ball yeah. to me in order for me to do all of what you just said, process the defense, make the play, have the guys come after me. Without the center, there's no giving the ball to me. So it, to me, you're the very most key cog, important piece of any offense. Because I played with Tommy Nalen, who was one, probably one of the best centers ever played. Yeah, he knew my checks. Yeah. He knew my reads. He knew the check to go to. He knew the defense, the secondary. He knew, he knew what everybody had to do. He could read the signals from the sideline and tell me sometimes when I forget to play. So to me, like, it's like there's a quarterback who's 295 pounds, who's strong, he's agile, he's super uber smart. 
He knows everything also, yet he does it all incognito behind the scenes and doesn't even get paid to as close to the quarterback. So very underappreciated. You're a badass, dude. I would love to play for you. Everything you say makes me want to play with you. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, so much fun. And, and to kind of come full circle, Grant, your question about Phillip Rivers, I always tell people this. Phillip is basically an offensive lineman trapped in a quarterback's body. <laughs> if if he yeah. happened to be 295 pounds, he would have been a hell of a center because he's got that kind of fight and toughness and grit, and he's not going to let his teammates down. He's not going to let an injury yeah. hold him back. And I'm telling you, he has played through some nasty ones. I mean, there was a season oh, yeah. in 2013-2014 where he had some bulging discs in his back. And he had legit drop foot. Like during the week, his foot would not pick up. He couldn't tell his, his brain oh. could not tell his foot to lift oh. his toe up because the nerve was all impinged. And he would call me during that season and he'd say, I don't know how I'm going to get through this game, Nick. I, I don't know how I'm going to do it or if I'm going to be able to do it. And I'm just, you know, as a friend, and I was out of the league at that point, I said, you know, just as a, as a friend, I mean, take care of yourself, man. This is long term. And then sure enough, I was calling the games. I was either a field reporter or the color analyst. Sure enough, he'd come marching down that tunnel and running around and scrambling like nothing was going on. I mean, as good as he possibly could scramble, he, he sure was no Jake Plummer. But he uh, he worked the pocket, you know, he, man. He worked the pocket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that's where. That's right. But I mean, some of the things that he's played through: torn ACL, broken fingers, cracked ribs. That he would get shot for all season long. I mean, that is one tough sucker. And I, I always tell people he's the toughest guy I ever played with at any position. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I, I do want to get into your mindset during during a game. What is, when you're playing on the field, what is that one thing that you love the most that a quarterback does during a game? And what is that one thing that drives you crazy that a quarterback does during a game? <laughs> Oh, well, I, I can speak from experience. The um, and you know, fans will see this about Philip too. That he's just super emotional, and he he rides the waves of the game, which is incredibly fun. But I always thought at times there was moments where I'm like, he just tone it down a little bit. Don't talk to this ref <laughs> that way because it's not going to come out on you. It's going to come out in a holding call or a, a false start <laughs> on us. So let's tone that down. Or, and, and this was fun too, is he always liked to talk trash to the defense. And he was so good at it because he knows their assignments. He knows where they're supposed to be. And he knows who blew it and allowed the big play to happen. So he'd be jaw-jacking the defense. And I thought a lot of the times it was to get him going because he really liked to be play at an elevated state, like playoff-type atmosphere, Monday night football, Sunday night, those kind of – real ruckus, pressure-filled games. He loved those kind of games. And the, the main games was the one that we knew, all right, let's be, let's be careful here because we know Phillip's going to piss off one of these gigantic defensive linemen. He's going to be jaw-jacking, and then you're really going to have to strap this thing up because, you know, you're playing a regular Sunday day game. You're a veteran in the league. And – as exciting as they still were, they weren't quite the playoff games. And I'm telling you, without a doubt on those games, he would be talking. And I know it was to get him at an elevated place so he could be as mentally focused as he need to, so he could have as good of a game as possible. 
but it also put the pressure back on us. So it was kind of a love-hate because it made those, I don't want to call them meaningless games because every game in the NFL is meaningless, but it made those less pressure-packed games more pressure-filled and more anxiety-inducing, which ultimately, I have to say, did make it more fun. Oh, that's a good way to look at it, man. You know, he was a fiery player. I love his passion. Um, you know, those, those games to get through him, that's hard. So, yeah, having a little extra burst is always good for you. Um, yeah. I want to I I ask you a question, too. You know, mentally, uh, being a center, it, it takes a lot of preparation, almost exactly, you know, more. You're sometimes telling five guys what to do or, you know, four other guys what to do on any given play and then a change or a change of protection or a late second, you know, shift for the defense, you you are the communicator to get the protection flipped. Mm-hmm. But mentally and, and just through mental toughness, how much did your wrestling during your, you know, days growing up, you didn't play football in high school, which is crazy to think like, what, are you kidding me? Here you go, people listening. It's possible that you can do other things and still – you know, succeed at a high level, but how much did wrestling benefit you on the gridiron? Wrestling was everything for me. When I think back to key moments in my life, that's probably key moment. Number one, other than being born to the parents that I was blessed to have and the genetics and the DNA that they passed down that allowed me to have this frame and the muscle types and the amount of intelligence that I have possessed. And, you know, other than that, I think wrestling in high school really, allow the light switch to come on in my head that everything you do and all the success that you have comes back to the amount of effort that you want to put into it. And it was the first time that I became absolutely psychotic about a mission and a goal that I had in mind. And I always loved sports and I was always that kid running around, throwing the ball to myself, dragging my dad to all the extra coaching sessions before that became a cool thing to do. I would find little extra ways to continue to play sports, but wrestling was the one that I first fell in love with the whole concept. I went down as a eighth grader or a freshman to market square arena at the time. It's where the Pacers played in downtown Indianapolis. And I watched the state wrestling championships and there was one mat in the middle of the arena, 18,000 people going crazy from all across the state of Indiana one spotlight on that middle circle and they would announce you coming across the mats in front of all these people. And I thought, Holy hell, I've got to be a part of that. That is the dream for me. And so I became absolutely obsessed with it. And everything that I did in my life was aligned around finding a way to compete in that match and to hopefully win a state championship. And I ended up going 19 and 20 as a varsity wrestler my sophomore year. I was horrible. I had a nervous breakdown. I didn't know how to cut weight. I still hadn't really hit puberty. And I was really struggled, although I tried my ass off. I mean, I gave it all she's got, Captain, but it just wasn't working against some of the bigger, more mature men. And then I finally blossomed in between my sophomore and junior year, hit puberty pretty hard got strong, cranked the weights out and figured, just figured out the sport a little bit more. I ended up going 48 and three that year, getting put out. I got caught in a, uh, in a throw in the first round of the state finals, but I was the second seeded kid coming into the tournament 
And then finally, my senior year, I ended up as the state runner-up in a really close, lost a really close match in the state finals. But I got to live the dream that I had dreamt for myself my freshman year. And that's when everything clicked for me, that the more effort I put in and the more that I care and the more that I obsess about this, the better off I'm going to be. And I, I think all of those things that wrestling taught me, I mean, the intangibles alone, but then the tangibles of the strength through different planes and the balance and understanding body position and leverage and yeah. being in better shape than an opponent and how important that was. So you can ultimately break his will because right. That's what we're trying to do in football too. It's I'm physically going to try to impose myself on you. It's funny. I, I got off the phone. I did a podcast this morning with Olin Krutz and we were both very similar. And he mentioned Tom Nalen and Casey Wigman and, guys like us that were smaller, that were feisty, that were in really good shape, that were quick. But we knew at the beginning of the game, it was going to be tough sledding, moving those big hosses out of there. But we were eventually going to come down to it and we were going to wear you out and be able to break your will and impose ourselves on you because we wanted it more and we were in better shape and we weren't going to quit for anything. And I think ultimately that's what wrestling gave me was that never quit mentality and the, and some of the subtle techniques that came along with the sport that I just, I used at the center position. It was just such a natural fit when I finally came back to football and found that position. It just seemed like I am at home in almost immediately. Wow. wow. Hear that out there, listeners and kids. That's how you do it. You find <laughs> something to help you get better at the thing you want to be. It's not just always about centering just, Practicing to be a center, to be a center, you know, be well-rounded. Big time. Oh, God, 100, 100%. I try to tell that to kids all the time. I mean, I think I saw the game slightly different than guys who had only focused on football and, and got in the in the box. And I think the rut of this is the technique and this is the only technique where wrestlers put your body in strange positions to be able to achieve the ultimate technique, right, which is kind of flowing and, I always kind of came back to Bruce Lee. It's like, be like water. When he expands, I contract. When he contracts, I expand. And when it comes time to hit, I do not hit. It hits all by myself. It's like, that's (laughs) that martial arts, that kind of wrestler mentality. It's like you, you train those techniques so well that you're not even thinking of them when you're on the field. You're not robotic. You're just very fluid and you can really spring on somebody when the time presents itself. And I, I, I credit wrestling with a lot of that. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Well, before we get into some of our out-of-pocket questions or out-of-the-pocket questions, I want to just touch a little bit on leadership. You you talked about, I mean, you've had the opportunity to, to play with incredible quarterbacks throughout your career. So when you look at their qualities, their leadership qualities, what's, what stands out to you as um, the most important leadership qualities from a quarterback perspective? I think the most important thing to be a leader is that on any team that you're trying to lead, regardless of football team, other sports team, business organization, whatever team you're trying to lead, the leader has to care more than anybody else. And the leader can't just say he cares more than anybody else. He has to show that he cares more than anybody else. He has to put more time in, put more sweat equity in be willing to go further, work harder, work longer than everybody else in that organization. Because I promise you, I'm not going to follow somebody 
who doesn't care as much or more than me. And I think that's one common thread that both Breeze, Rivers, and Doug Flutie had is that they cared more than anybody else about the outcome of the game. And, and part of it is they were wired that way. They were just uber competitive and you can still see it going into their forties and Phillips is going to be 38 this year. And, you know, he is 38. He's going to be 39 at the end of the season. I mean, they are wildly competitive and they're wired that way, but they also show it in the amount of effort that they put into the work and the diligence and the hours that they put in. And I think if you have any quality as a leader, there's so many different ways to do it. And I've seen great leaders that were introverts, great leaders that were extroverts. I mean, Breeze and Rivers were completely different from a leadership standpoint, but the thing they had in common is that they cared more about the outcome of the team than anybody else. Well said, well said. Uh, I'm going to ask you some out of the pockets here, man, because we're near the end of our podcast. And I just sometimes like to understand, uh, you know, with a few questions a little more about our guests. And so these ones are going to be uh, as quick as you can answer them, as easy as you want. Uh, three people dead or alive that you would want to have dinner with. <laughs> oh, God, I love that. Uh, I would love to have dinner with Tom Brady, Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. and one more. Mm. Maybe like an Abraham Lincoln. Ooh. Throwing some old school there. I like that. Abe sounds yeah. like he would have been yeah. a pretty dope dude to hang out with. <laughs> totally. Doesn't <laughs> he? Yeah. It's kind of a guy who thought for himself, when didn't care what people thought about him and just went with the role. Yeah. I mean, wearing that beard and that hat like that, he had some, some panache, man. Oh, God. He was super tough. The other one that I think would be super cool is Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, the guy oh, who yeah. uh, uh-huh. he was, he was, he was a boxer. He was a tough guy. He was an outdoorsman, but he was also incredibly good at being the president of the United States. Like, he started all the national park systems. So Teddy Roosevelt, I got to throw him in there too. And if I could take anybody so, else, I guess I'd take off Tom Brady for Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, there you go. Nice mix. <laughs> you spoke of presidents. I have to ask one more out of the box question out of the pocket. I mean, if you had a one question right now and you ran across, stumbled across Donald Trump, what question would you ask our pre- current president right now? If you could go back four years, would you run for president again? <laughs> Good uh, one. Uh, I, I think I would. I think I would ask every president that too. By the way, because I think the thought of being the president and the actual day to day of being the president is completely different like you've got this childhood dream of being the president of the united states and then you finally live in you're like what happened what did i get myself into (laughs) i i mean i gotta give him credit though for being what is he 73 years old and his ability to work Uh, whether you like the politics or not the the amount of work capacity that that man possesses and i i think all presidents ultimately have this is the ability to just continue to work. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I got you. Those are my questions, Grant, unless you have one for Nick. Yeah, man. Throw it at him, man. All right, man. This is, uh, I'm going to tap into your spirit animal. So if, if you were going to transform yourself into your spirit animal on the field, so if you could turn into an animal on the line of scrimmage, what, what would it be? 
Oh, I love that. And it's fun because I used to, when I was a younger version of myself coming into the league, I was small, I was wiry, and I was super feisty, and I was really athletic for the center position. And my strength coach used to call me the big cat. And so I always, and I, and I love going to the zoo and looking at the cats, right? Like the big ones. I don't like house cats. Not, not a huge fan of that, but like the jaguars, the mountain lions, the lions, the tigers. I mean, those, those things are the jam for me. I mean, they are just so mystical. It's just wonderful to look at them. So I, I think I would turn myself into a jag. Beautiful. Yeah, I like it. I like that one. And if you can go back and do it all over again, if you could play one position outside of being a center, what would that be? I'd be a tight end. You look yeah, like a tight I, end I now. T- <laughs> yeah, I think I would love to be a tight end. That's, if my boys want to get into the game, it's like, hey, dude, you got a couple positions to choose from. I mean, you get ultimately put in the spot that your body is designed for. But I would say quarterback or tight end for sure. I mean, tight end is so much fun. You get a block. You get to mix it up in line. You get to go out for passes. You get to do it all. I think it's a super cool tweener position. And I think it would be a ton of fun just watching these guys run around and catch touchdown passes, spike the ball, and be goofballs. <laughs> I love it, man. You know, you're another position that I think is right behind quarterback as far as importance as that tight end position. Like, Center, quarterback, tight end. You got those three covered. It's like having a good infield up up the middle. Pitcher, yeah. shortstop, second base, center fielder, catcher. Boom. Totally. Nice oh, I love how you describe it. Yeah, I like how you describe that there. That's the truth. Yeah. Who was your – Jake, who was your tight end? I played with a lot of them, but I uh, I guess one of my favorites was Chris Gedney down in Arizona. He was a really good tight yep. end. Um, I played with Shannon Sharp up here. Uh, Jeb Poutier was a tight end for a while. Uh, Dwayne Carswell. I mean, we never really had like one solid. I never had that dude that was with me for six, seven, six mm-hmm. years straight with Arizona and then here for in the Broncos. But again, at the, when we had a good one or we had two good ones, man, we could roll. I love twins formations, two tight ends, two receivers, oh, one back. That. You could oh. flip any play. I love it. Either way, it was just when you had two guys you could trust, that was a fun deal when you had good tight ends. Yeah, I am totally with you on the two tight ends. You can run the ball either direction, balance formation, yeah. you can pass, you can do it all. I think it's the most potent. That's I'm 100% with you. And do you yes. like when you think back to when you think back to your career, Jake? Do you think, man, if I would have had like that Antonio Gates or that Hall of Fame type oh, tight end that was by my side the entire time, would it have been different? Uh, I I think so. You know, there was times where it just you needed that guy from that position that could also stretch it and get those guys back off, you know, get them out of there. Yeah. Um, like I said, though, I had some pretty good ones, but no one that was just like a perennial year in year out badass. Um, it, you know, I think about that a lot sometimes, but I, I actually love that, you know, my, myself being, you know, not the greatest or not the best ever, but it was the will, the will and the heart and the, the effort that some of my guys that were lesser known players, like a Ruben drones or running back that, I just felt oh, yeah. like he was one of the most bad running backs I've ever played with because of his, his heart and his effort. And when he got the ball, it was like, I'm not getting one yard. I'm going to go get two and a half yards, even if I got to sting somebody. He just had it. So, like, those guys, you know, if they could have lasted 10 years, would be all famers, but some of them don't last. Yeah, Ruben was an absolute monster, wasn't he? Beast. A beast. And we just let him go. It was like, later, dude, you're gone. But 
that was shit hands, so you know, I, <laughs> I lived and rolled with whatever he did for four <laughs> years there. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. You know. Awesome. Well, Nick, man, it's it was awesome to have you on the show. I mean, this is uh, talking about out of the pocket guest, man. This was special, and uh, really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your energy on this. And um, I know my our listeners will as well. Guys, love spending time with you. Anytime you want to have me back, I'm available. Thank you so much, Nick. Uh, it was great talking to you, man. I love it. Uh, you know us, center quarterbacks, we got a special bond. So hopefully, uh, we can cross paths one day. It'd be fun to. See how you're doing on the outskirts of post-career with all the cool stuff you're doing with brain therapy and figuring out how to uh, you know, make that transition easier for guys. It's definitely something guys like you and I need to keep doing. So keep it up, man. Exactly. Do the same, Jake. And if I'm out in Boulder, I'll, I'll hit you up, give you a call. Maybe we can meet up for a dinner or something. Please do. That'd be great, man. Take care of those boys. Right, Have buddy. fun out there. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you. Thank you.